standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to Sunday Chops. One of two Sunday Chops. I say that a lot now. We really do spoil you a lot. We're going to have to produce more than two for it actually to qualify for being spoiling. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. First thing to say is when you finish listening to this episode, you should get yourself over and listen to a chops that Jen has done. She's talking to Gemma Neville about her book, Constitution Street, why we need to reframe democracy and what happens when you talk to your neighbours, which I'm certainly interested in because what happens when I talk to my neighbours is well, it's quite often weird. But first, what you are listening to now is an episode in which Mick and I went to the pub with Sophie Duca. Does that sound like fun? Yes, it certainly does. The comedian was one of the first women of colour to be nominated for the Edinburgh Award this year. We went to find out how life had changed since then and we had a great chat about all sorts of stuff. I'm going to stop talking. You're going to start listening to it. Until next time. Hi, Mickey and I are in the Big Chill in King's Cross underneath what appears to be a very, very loud helicopter. I think it's a fleet of helicopters. I think there's at least 12. <laughs> Extinction Rebellion are out, maybe. I think, yeah, I think they're out. Or as you said earlier, it could be preparation for Brexit. <laughs> so yeah. you may be listening to this whilst <laughs> holding your hands out trying to catch insulin. <laughs> so good luck with you. We are joined by comedian Sophie Duker. Hello! Thank you for being here. I'm we- so glad to be here at the end of all things. <laughs> <laughs> so this year... You were one of the first women of colour comedians yes. to be nominated for one of the Edinburgh Awards, yes. which is a long time coming, right? It, it is, it is. Yeah, it's a uh, category I did not know I was eligible for <laughs> at the time, though I think I probably would have suspected. Uh, and it was amazing. It was brilliant. Uh, it was wonderful to be nominated this year and especially to have it happen at the same time as London Hughes was nominated for the Best Show Awards. I was nominated for Best Newcomer. She was nominated for Best Show. And that happened, yeah, this year. I mean, you just said it was great to be nominated and that always seems like a, a, a platitude that people throw out when they haven't won. But in fact, being nominated at Edinburgh actually is one of the things that has a marked effect on your career. Have you noticed a difference? What's Has it gone a bit crazy for yeah. you? Yeah, no, I don't <laughs> sleep anymore. Um, no, I think being nominated just gives you that kind of like recognition. Uh, I think that it's kind of obviously there are so many different markers of success, but I think uh, especially for newcomer this year, the like range of acts that were nominated and the people that I know have been like working on such interesting and original ways in their careers is really cool. Um, I think it just gives me, like, personally, like, gives me, like, confidence to go into the room and be like, I've got something, and it's not completely shit. Can I say switch? Can I say shit? Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Of Great. Uh, it's not completely shit. Um, and it kind of, it gives you that kind of, like, little self-belief to, like, let you know that your work matches up to your expectations that you have of yourself. So that's kind of the most powerful thing that's come from it. But people, obviously, they've got their shortlist, they're looking at who's coming up and being nominated and being in part of that gang is really cool. And so your first show, your debut hour, is Venus. Yeah. And, my God, you tackle some stuff in that. Could you give us a little, like, 
synopsis of what goes on in Venus. Oh, God. So, the stuff that I talk about in Venus, I always worry when I have to be like, list of all these terrible things, and it's a comedy show. <laughs> uh, it is very funny. So, Venus is kind of about uh, the stereotyping and fetishization of black women in particular, uh, though it kind of deals with like expectations of women in general and like sexuality. Uh, I talk about porn. I talk about um, one uh, figure in particular who was a woman called Saki Bartman, who was a woman who was brought from South Africa to the UK and was exhibited in freak shows. So if you're doing a show that's kind of about the male gaze or the white male gaze, that's very directly yep. uh, about her because she was literally paraded in front of people and made to stand on a pedestal and called the Black Venus, um, but was obviously in these terrible conditions, died very young. And she was 26. She was, 20, she? she was 26 when she died. Uh, and then they properly went to town yeah, with her so posthumously. Posthumously. Yeah. posthumously. So she's kind of, uh, for me, well, for me, she's like an icon, but she kind of became symbolic because they cut up her body and uh, preserved her genitals and her brain and skeleton, I think, but put those on display. And those were on display in France. It was for science, Sophie. Yeah. Science. For science. It's insane, isn't it? It was very peaceful. It was kind of like that objectification when like, we all know like women are being like reduced to their body parts and she was literally reduced to these parts that were made to signify things that were convenient for people to believe yep. about black women at the yeah. time so they'd attribute like the size of her labia to like certain like character traits they'd like characterize her as like savage or sexual um and her body literally wasn't her own it was kind of broken up but in the but put on this kind of grotesque display not something that has literally happened to me but I think kind of making yourself visible in the world whether it's as a performer or just as a young black woman there are all sorts of double-edged swords that you have to encounter in ways in which you'll be celebrated but you don't necessarily identify with or ways that you'll be vilified that you also don't think have anything to do with you so it's kind of about finding where you where you fit and how you can embrace um, I guess like your inner goddess without sounding too gross without um, losing your sense of yourself as with all Edinburgh nominees you're taking your show to the Soho Theatre when when does that start? So, I am taking my show to the Soho Theatre. It starts on the 29th of October and ends on the 2nd of November, uh, which is obviously a very spooky, scary time. <laughs> uh, because of Halloween, but also because of Brexit. So, uh, Oh my God, it's so terrifying. It's a, it's a terrifying time. Who knows what will or won't happen. I'm also bringing the show back in January. Uh, I think from the 30th of January back at Soho Theatre for a second run. Does it feel different having a run at the Soho Theatre than sort of doing the comedy clubs and going up to Edinburgh? Doing a show at the Soho Theatre feels nuts. Like, if you are into comedy, and I grew up in London, like, the Soho Theatre is kind of like this weird sort of, like, micro like micro Edinburgh world. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you just get to see so many brilliant shows. I think that's where I saw Natalie Palamides. Oh, yeah, she's amazing. Um, it's where I've seen people like Desiree Burt. Um, it's such a cool venue, and it's, like, in its spirit, it really wants to champion, like, the best in comedy. So I think the first time I was at the Soho Theatre and I saw that my, like, on a, the PowerPoint that my face on my show was coming up, <laughs> I wanted to scream, but I just didn't want to let out a blood-curdling scream in the Soho Theatre Cafe. But it's such a cool thing. Like, when my friend Olga Pot was up there, it's, like, it's really exciting. It feels like... Not necessarily a rite of passage, but something that it was always for other people and not for you. So for it to be happening is great. Was comedy something you always wanted to do? No, no. <laughs> comedy was not something I necessarily always wanted to do. I was always like 
into... I think I always was going to be a performer, even though I was really shy when I was a kid. Because I would always write weird songs and make me and my brother perform them and do little skits. And so I like was always creative, but I was really reserved. And I think when I started like doing drama and then doing improv, I thought being a stand-up comedian, I was like, I'm neurotic enough. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to put all the attention on myself. But I think it was just because I didn't think I was sort of allowed it or... Yeah, I didn't back myself to be the kind of person that could be a comedian more than the lifestyle or the job didn't attract me. Yeah, and I guess, were there many role models or people doing that that made you feel that you could be someone who did it? Um, So I used to be, to my shame, like incredibly... um, Because I... Well, I don't... I used to be incredibly snobby about female comedians because I went to... I mean, I think I went to a university where a lot of the... Not exclusively, but a lot of the idols of comedy were men. A lot of the people that were talking about stand-up and doing stand-up and doing comedy were men. It was a very male environment. It was a very sort of... uh, Almost like chauvinist tendency in the way that we performed sometimes. And so women who were part of that group were kind of like tokens or supporting roles. Completely not totally, but that was kind of the format and so you had to really fight to get out of that I think I went to the fringe in 2010 maybe and I think Josie Long was the first woman that I saw that I was like this is I think I thought that she wasn't going to be funny because everyone had said how she was wonderful and nice and that was a thing that I wasn't used to being compatible I thought it was like an excuse for her not being funny and I saw the show and I was like oh I just want to be her best friend she's the most (laughs) hilarious person in the world and it was kind of I'd seen obviously seen like amazing female performers before that I'd seen female comedians on TV but going to that live show I think I was like oh there's a, there's a way to be brilliant that doesn't just involve um, traits that are usually associated with being masculine like being super aggressive or super dominating um, so that she was one of many many female comedians that I looked up to. You went to university at Oxford, didn't you? Now, I live in Cambridge. That I'm not suggesting we have a fight. But what I do know from living in Cambridge... Well, I have brought two boats. <laughs> oh. What I do know from living in Cambridge and, and having a lot of friends who work there is there is a persistent problem with attracting people of colour to the Oxbridge universities. Yes. Can I ask what your experiences of being there were like, given the few people that I have interviewed who didn't actually even... White working class people have struggled to kind of find themselves at, at, at Oxford and Cambridge. How was it for you? No, of course. I I definitely felt like I was in the minority when I arrived at Oxford. I think I was one of 27 black black African students in an intake of 3,000. I might have to quite check that. Pat, check that. But yeah. yeah, one of 27 split up over lots of different colleges. So That is part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah. The visibility of people that look like me. I didn't see anyone that looked like me apart from when I went to Sainsbury's and then there were black women at the checkouts. And then once I think I walked into an uh, economics and management lecture and uh, there were a lot more people of colour concentrated in like that slightly more... Um, not not humanities, artsy fartsy, mm-hmm. slightly more vocational degree. And what uh, about the lecturers? Um, I think what what's amazing is I think I don't know what the exact figures are. I think there are less than twenty black female lecturers at Oxford. I was so lucky that I was taught by a woman of colour called Anki Mukherjee. I was taught by, um, but I think so many people, especially in like high institutions, don't necessarily have 
that the opportunity at any point in their education to be taught by a person of colour and that kind of shapes who you see in positions of authority mm. shapes who you listen to shapes yep. where like, the words come from yeah. um, and I make a joke at the end of Venus that um, listening to me talk for an hour might be the longest people have watched Black Woman do anything outside of a private browser um, <laughs> And I think, yeah, I think it's that's so important. It's so vital. Like, I had a brilliant time, but I think that I was, I was m- kind of inclined at the time that I was at Oxford to see my blackness as something that was not relevant and not useful and not to be thrust to the fore because I was in this, um, you know, high-achieving, meritocratic, Ooh. supposedly neutral society where everyone was just getting on. <laughs> it's harder for some people, people who come from working-class yeah. backgrounds, people different gender identities uh people who come from marginalized communities it's really really hard um and now like at cambridge especially like stuff like i've just been recently talking about the stormsy effect have you heard oh that? Yeah. yeah that's like the only bit of good news that's in the news at the moment yeah, yeah. Uh, it sounds like a fragrance but it is not uh <laughs> it's that stormsy has been funded i think two uh like tuition and living fees for two students to go students of i think black students to go to cambridge and but I think like that is symptomatic of like loads of outreach work that's been done yeah. by both universities. The fact that there are more visible people in the media, more role models, and like things are changing slowly. But there's still places where you're like you've got to fight initially to get over people's preconceptions of the place. I didn't want to go to Oxford because of my preconceptions of the place before I went. You said that about Cambridge, didn't you? Yeah, I'm uh, from a working class background, working class, and I went to look around Cambridge and just found that I was very much condescended to. Um, yeah, totally put me off because I couldn't see anyone that I could relate to. And they teamed me, and it's not his fault, but they teamed me up with a posh boy called Farquhar. And I was like, <laughs> oh my I can't God. do this. I can't wow, do this. Farquhar. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know why I'm surprised. There are a lot of Farquhars, <laughs> Tarquins, a lot of Eaton boys. Uh, some of my best friends are Eaton boys. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it, there are always, wherever you go, and that's what's such, it's such a relief um, to realise that there are always those points of connection mm. and also performing means that you go out to places where someone sees you and you know that the f- you're the first person that they have resonated with or the first person like you that they that yeah. you've made it possible for them to think that they could do something even if it's not the same thing as you so yeah it was nice to find those points of contact at Oxford but um, it is a struggle and it is a struggle when why would you make things more difficult for yourself yeah. Yeah. why would you go into an environment where you think that you're going to fail um, it's yeah it's really it's really hard and I think that the inception of like race and class is really important because when I made my documentary my student documentary the kids are all white I found uh-huh. out that a lot of the that is a great name amazing. Thank you. I'm just grinning <laughs> um, what I found was I was like making this pretty unplanned documentary about race but I found that a lot of the black people that I spoke to, that I had exposure to, had come from fairly um, relatively privileged backgrounds. Mm. They were often like middle class. They were often already kind of tokens used to being in very white middle class environments. Yeah. And the few people that I spoke to that were black people that hadn't had, um, or people of colour, sorry, that hadn't come from a, a particular environment where their parents were teachers or they were you know, very equipped to deal with the challenges of a really academic place. Um, had experienced just horrific microaggressions from people who were ignorant and like would ask them if they'd been in a gang or assume them not to be intelligent and um, people yeah people have at the time people treated me very clearly like differently depending on how I presented at Oxford like if I went into a new college and I was dressed sort of scruffily 
and the porter would always like stop me when and they'd let my friends go through and that's something that I don't Fucking know it continues in different arenas in my life <laughs> yeah wow. so it must have been it must have been a real relief then to go from that world to the world of comedy which uh-huh. is just so different and Super so diverse oh wait, 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 wait no 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 um actually it was and I think the reason it was is because women and people of colour in comedy are like doing the most to create like safe environments mm. to reach out to each other to network and the first uh, sort of comedy thing I did was enter the Funny Women Awards which obviously a lot of successful female comedians have passed through or interacted with at some point and that was kind of like tipping the toe in the waters there's so much like beyond that um stuff like uh, this where women can get together and speak and like it feels there's always the thing of like if, if you don't ever want to feel like being a woman is niche um, or even being a person of colour is niche yeah. but that people who are making the effort to create links are just so much more vocal and enthused at the moment and it's creating really exciting work I think yeah so yeah comedy eventually was like it's a huge haven from the real world uh-huh. that's incredible that that is a bit mind-blowing to me yeah it hasn't been like that and no. it's good to and know it, that it, it's changing it wasn't like that when I did comedy and I did comedy I stopped doing comedy 10 years ago probably and it, I've You've never stopped I met maybe half a dozen women in five years. Oh, wow. Um, no. And I was very lucky. I met Sarah Millican. I met Helen Thorne. Amazing. I met great people, the okay, ones that yeah, I did yeah, meet. Yeah, yeah. But it was absolutely rare. As I mean, it was just me. It would just be me and men. And that would be I mean, all that I was on know, the bill. I don't know how you guys did it. I don't know, like, seeing people, like, comedians. Like, I don't know what, like, elder states were. Yeah. <laughs> but just comedians that, like, even, like, five, yeah, even five years ago, even a few years ago, there's a sort of the sort of things that I think female comedians had to go through is just horrific the green rooms and like it still it still happens Mm. but you know I think also because of like the the internet and people speaking you know what's happening to other people you're not just like up in your small town and the only person doing it on your particular circuit absolutely it's not just you and then someone on TV like Sarah like you can see like Sort of not, not necessarily progression but other points of reference and yeah. other ways to be because you don't know how to make it and be brilliant if you're just starting out yeah and there's so much I think like so much discourse at like the lower levels now that we like everyone feels like they can like achieve what they want in comedy yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. I mean yeah because I think there was the Chortle notice board if you wanted to talk to anyone oh. in comedy or that was it but all the gatekeepers are just terrible not all the gatekeepers yeah. now no, they're I, just yeah, horrific whereas, men they were like yeah. don't speak to me except for on a full moon between two people <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing on November the 18th? I'm thinking of and I want you to brace yourself for this Hannah but I am thinking of talking to some men. Ah. Wow. Any yeah. men in particular? Handpicked three. Craig Parkinson, that's right. He of unbuttoning and buttoning his jacket on Line of Duty and also the amazing Two Shot podcast. Nish Kumar, he of the Mass Report and General Funniness. And Mr. Joe Lysett, he of hilarity on Sue's whenever he is in a room. And fantastic. What I can only describe as blouses. He does have incredible blouses. What do you think the chances of getting all those people in the same room at the same time are, Mickey? I'm glad you've asked, Jen, because I've been working very hard to make this happen alongside my <laughs> lovely colleagues, Jen and Hannah, who you may know well. And uh, it is going to happen at King's Place on November the 18th, which is International Men's Day Eve. It's going to be mint. Get your ticket. 
Yeah, if you want to get to www.standardissuepodcast.com, you will find details of that and our many other live shows. I love that you always say the www. I know. I, I interviewed Sam Avery, another man, once, and he said it, We're and everywhere. it just made me laugh. So I like to put it in. We were talking about um, women of colour in comedy. Now, when I was doing comedy, there were there were it, during that period there were two women of colour who were doing very well: Genia Sherry yeah. and the O Show. Yes, they both went to America. They both went to America. <laughs> what do we need to do in this country to stop the talent drain going abroad? I think that people who do comedy sometimes tend to be outsiders or observers or people who are slightly detached from the main thrust of things yeah. so that they can step in and I think that I felt I thought that Gina and Andy obviously both who were huge inspirations for me they it kind of felt like a bit too close to home for some people to be giving like commentary on society or relationships I think that we need to acknowledge the bad like the bad bits of who we are as British people as well as um as well as the good bits and I think there's like less eagerness sometimes to celebrate homegrown talent if it challenges in some way whether explicitly with like, the content or, or implicitly the status quo than it is to maybe um, acts from overseas I think a similar thing might even be happening in America because there's a lot of discussions about black British actors and comedians taking in inverted roles, cult, roles for African Americans mm. but I think it's something um, I think it's something about the institutions themselves and, like I mentioned, some of the people with power in those institutions who are less willing to give chances to people who seem like they're different from the norm. Yeah. So I think that's what happens, that what a lot of people of colour in the, the industry encounter is that it's too it's too jarring or it's too it's kind of too much of a too much of a threat i think yeah and i think there definitely used to be this attitude not just towards uh, people of color but just as an example another woman i met when i was uh, doing comedy was liz carr and people would persistently say to her why are all your jokes about being in a wheelchair and she was like because i'm in a fucking wheelchair yeah. <laughs> i can't write jokes about jogging i can't you know yeah, yeah, yeah. But people kind of have this it's not my life they, if they don't see their own life being reflected back to them, they're kind of not keen to see yeah. the funny but in I've it. I've identified with so many old white men. So <laughs> many, I've, I've really, I've invested in their stories. You don't, someone hey. doesn't have to look. Yeah. Hey, come on, I can wear a t-shirt and observe things. Yeah, yeah. I can do that. <laughs> but it, I mean, you go back even to when women are on stage, just like women. As, as a niche is yeah. that whole. Whenever we look at stuff, oh, it's women's stuff, but men represent humankind. Yes. Yeah. So frustrating. Exactly. Who do we need to get rid of? How do we make this stop? I don't know. Maybe that's what the helicopter's yeah. up there to sort out. I think, it's being yeah. <laughs> so is it too soon to ask you if you're going to Edinburgh next year? No, I'm going to Edinburgh next year. I'm definitely going back. I love it there, even though it saps my energy. <laughs> and your finances. And your finances. And your mental health. But um, it's like, I'm sure a lot of comedians say this, like, for me it is like comedian summer camp. And it is also, everyone's brains are so great. Like, you go yes. there and see what people come up with, and it's just, it is, as draining as it is, it is also invigorating. And, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not missing it next year. I also want to make sure I can write another show. <laughs> I was going to say, have you got something in mind? Um, I kind of do. I have some ideas sort of percolating. I went just after the Fringe. I decided I, decided I was invited to do a job on a cruise. 
a lesbian cruise uh, called by a travel agency called Olivia. So I was performing to 700 adult women uh, somewhere off the Italian Riviera. That's um, great. I mean, wow. which was a very, I mean, it was so much fun. It was incredibly intimidating because not only were a lot of these women uh, at least twice my age, but also they were American. They had a different context. I was black and British. Yeah. Um, and so like going into that sort of um, environment was like very intimidating. I definitely want to speak about that in my next show. But also um, just generally, I think one thing that I've been thinking about is like the sort of idea of like women, like, okay, I, I, this is like the first time I'm talking about it, so I might not speak about it very well. But one of the things I've been thinking about is like the idea of the witches, so do you know the Roald Dahl book where his yes. like, like, like that's a book which I loved Roald Dahl basically teaches you to fear all single elder women yeah, yeah. Um, all, and like, rightly so oh yeah. wait no, no. <laughs> hang on like, fear, the <laughs> like, fear the crone like, yeah. that's just, like some of the women that are like pushed out and like the hags or right, who are on the like margins of society or who are alone are doing amazing things there was a woman from Belgium on the um uh, who was like I would rather be alone than like badly accompanied she said it in French which is why she said it so weirdly um, but <laughs> I was just like these, this is like fascinating and the idea of willfully distancing yourself from I guess the Venus goddess sexy vixen baby uh, image and like finding a kind of like brilliance in that she and I should talk, right? Yeah. 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 So I kind of want to look at the hags and the witches. I love that. I hope that's still what I want to talk yeah. about next summer, but that's something that I've been really into. Our maiden mother crone, which are the three stages of womanhood, I think the crones get to have so much more fun because yeah. they don't have a lot of shit to do or look after or be bothered about the male gaze. You can just yeah. get on with being yourself. Yeah, I think that's... like, like those, I think, yeah, having women be just like purely themselves and like that's kind of what I want to look at. It's going to be about women again. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, do not apologise to us. We are absolutely your crowd. (laughs) I want to ask you about a tweet. Mm. So there was a tweet that went out when you were on Mock the Week Mm. that said, our intern is on Mock the Week. Um. (laughs) Could you tell us what that was about? Oh, no. So that... (laughs) That was... um, (laughs) That was... I actually, I know I wasn't an intern for them at the time. I was into them a few years ago. Right, okay. Uh, so they it made it sound like you were still in the office. <laughs> no. So I, as well as doing comedy on screen and writing and stuff, I also work in television production or have worked in TV right, production. Right, okay. Uh, I was part of a group called Creative Access, which gets more people of colour into like the creative industries. And what's actually been really weird throughout my career, well, not throughout my career, but recently, is that now I'm on some of the shows that I used to work on like I remember like prepping Jimmy Carr for a scene and then I was on this Monday I was in a show with him in Roast Battle oh, and amazing. it's kind of it feels like we're like a weird Cinderella kind of Ooh. at first I was like I don't want to be a comedian like I'm not a comedian and yeah. then kind of the two worlds colliding is very is very weird but cool and it's nice to feel like you have the respect of yeah your like peers and your colleagues in that way but yeah they, and I have been doing like work, just work all the time I've been like working in a writer's room and then had to like nip out to like another floor of the building to have like when I was on Riot Girls like an interview with stylists <laughs> and then like rush back so that like Frankie Boyle wouldn't notice that I was missing so I could make notes <laughs> so I've had to like Mrs. Doubtfire a lot of things in my career um, 
but yeah that tweet kind of the tweet about me being an intern kind of encapsulated that because a lot of people were being like wait she was a researcher on the show what's she doing talking to like Jonathan Ross or whatever yeah yeah you're making it look easy to get on telly you just yeah. like, I mean, you just wander you on just, you just get a job on the team yeah. and then you're like can I <laughs> it's like do you remember when people, you, people used to get jobs in extenders at a local newspaper and they'd be making the tea and then two weeks later they'd be the editor yeah, that's how it works in journalism that's, in EastEnders. Exactly, yeah. that's also yeah. how it works for uh, in comedy. It's you very know. easy to get on television. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a doddle. <laughs> so, tell me, when is your show on and when can people find out more about you? Yes, okay, so my show is on at Soho Theatre at the end of October, 29th to the 2nd of November. Um, you can find out more about me at my Twitter is probably the best place I should get a website but for now I'm on the social media so at Sophie Dukebox is where I'll post the most important things you can find that on Twitter Instagram Facebook uh, that's where I'll be at Sophie Dukebox and um, ugh, I don't know where in general I'll be hopefully on more lesbian cruises um, <laughs> you do run like your own do you still run your oh own God, comedy I show I can't believe I've got to mention that okay so best place to find me before the end of the year because you've obviously already bought tickets to Venus at Soho Theatre and this is redundant I host a night called Wacky Racists comic, comedy club uh, it's not a night for actually wacky she's great on the puns racists. she really is I love a good pun it's just a pun please don't come if you're actually a bigot <laughs> yeah Wacky Racists is a really super inclusive night it platforms people of colour but also like generally aims for better representation across the board we play games like uh, pin the tail on the honky we give out prizes <laughs> we have amazing stand-ups people like uh, Rosie Jones London Hughes uh, we have a Halloween special where we'll be do ta- doing tarot readings and dressing up and we have a Christmas special also at Soho Theatre Amazing. Thank you. I genuinely think that if Sophie started making tea on a newspaper, she'd be writing the headlines within a fortnight. Watch out, Osborne. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so great. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Standard Issue for All Women.